Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi there. This is Richard Franklin, and I play Captain Mike Yates on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the prehistoric task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a four dinosaur discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's my favorite plesiosaur, the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. <laughs> Hello. Yes. We also have our semi casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast. And this time around, it's the Velociraptor Fast, Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. Yeah, she'll snatch it like a pterodactyl. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast a longtime friend of ours who has more knowledge about this series than I ever will in my pea-sized lizard brain, my favorite T-Rex, Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hi. I thought it'd be a Triceratops, but, you know. <laughs> oh, I should have thought of that. I thought your brain would be at least the size of a walnut, but it's down to a pea. <laughs> no, it's the size of a pea today. Too much alcohol. Yep. So if you like what you're hearing, despite all the dino puns, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you get per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them now that you feed the extra ones to your pet Brontosaurus, just to say thank you for being willing to help stay on the virtual air. My God, those are getting worse, aren't they? And as usual... And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, and our new patron who just joined us this week, James Sumnall. Welcome, James. Thanks, y'all. Yay. Yes, if it were not for you, we would not be here. Well, not literally. I mean, Wait. it's not like the golden agers would wipe us out of existence. And not I thought we were discovering the true identity of our father. <laughs> oh, are we? Yes. If it weren't for him, he, we wouldn't be here. Oh, oh, well, that's... Oh, I see. <laughs> Boy, I am slow today. See, I told you, peace, brain. There you go. We also have a Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue our discussion of Pertwee's last season with the novelization of the next actual televised story, The Dinosaur Invasion. Without further ado, 
Here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion, adapted by Malcolm Hulk from a script Invasion of the Dinosaurs that aired from 1-12-74 to 2-16-74, published by Target Books in February 1976. As of this recording in June of 2020, this title is currently in print from BBC Books and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 141 pages. Now, I do have a surprising amount of info to throw at you about this book before we get into discussing it, so bear with me. It'll be news to Allison and to Dalton, and Trey probably knows all of it, so forgive <laughs> me if I'm boring anybody with it. All right, as you already know, this is Malcolm Hulk's last book in story order. His actual last book was The War Games, which he completed just before his death in 1979. This is also his last script for the series, as he found writing the Target books to be a lot more fun. It's also in many ways the most overtly political of his stories, which comes across a lot more on the page than it does on screen for various reasons. Now, unfortunately, people tend to get distracted from that because of various problems. One problem is that the dinosaur puppets in the original are awful. They are terrible. In fact, I will show you a clip of them later on to show you just how bad they are. Barry Letts wanted to go a different route toward realizing dinosaurs than using, say, an actor in a full-size suit, and since the puppets of the Drashigs had been so effective, he figured the BBC effects department could do the same with dinosaurs. What could go wrong? Everything, as it turns out. Because the BBC couldn't handle the production of such large puppets, they contracted an outside firm to do them, and once the production team got them, they had to make do with what they got because there was no way of making them look better. And I think I read in one of the things that that outside firm actually pitched that, oh, we can do dinosaurs for you. And there was like, and so this was like a sales pitch that went horribly wrong. (laughs) Like they they said, so then they scripted this thing. And once they started realizing that the dinosaurs weren't going to be as advertised, then my understanding is Hulk rewrote it significantly to start minimizing their appearances. Yes, that's exactly right. Because really, the puppets themselves are ridiculously stiff and plastic looking. They're usually overlaid on film footage via color separation overlay, what we would call green screen or blue screen. And it never looks good. But it's especially bad when the puppets are shot on video and that's overlaid on film. Oh, man. They sort of move, trying to explain this to Dot and Allison, but have you ever gone to the zoo where they have like those dinosaurs that are sort of robotized and they kind of move one thing at a time and yeah. they sort of and then they kind Animal of open their mouth and then after the mouth is open then you hear the roar yeah it's, it's it's like that but with puppets yes and with a person a person doing the roar sound effect and sometimes you can hear him he's literally saying roar <laughs> yes particularly bad there's the a audio would have been affordable they could do something like distorted dog growl or something right yeah, but no, no. And in fact, they do have a climactic battle between two dinosaurs at one point, and oh my god, it's painful. Sure, bashing the special effects in a DW episode is the equivalent of picking low-hanging fruit, but in this case, even Barry Letts himself was let down by the effects, and he felt that they let the story down. This episode also saw the first appearance of what's called the Who-Mobile, which is a futuristic-looking car that Pertwee financed out-of-pocket himself when Let's vetoed it because of the cost involved. It appears here, and in Pertwee's last story, pointedly, it does not appear in the book because, of course, it wasn't scripted. 
<laughs> so that's why it's not there. This story is also memorable because only five of the six episodes are actually titled Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The first episode went out simply as Invasion because Letts and Dix wanted to keep the appearance of the dinosaurs a surprise. Unfortunately, the Radio Times, which is uh, roughly the British equivalent of TV Guide when it was in its heyday, they gave the surprise away with their description of the first episode. So it ended up serving no purpose at all, and Terrence Sticks always regretted it. Now, this has led to a very interesting fan myth that has persisted for years, and which some people still believe to be true, because I've heard people say it recently. The <laughs> color copy of the first episode in the BBC archives was wiped. So the only existing copy is the black and white film recording. Because the first episode of the Patrick Troughton story, Invasion, was also wiped in the BBC archives, along with its fourth episode, it was long assumed that the BBC somehow got the paperwork wrong and wiped both the Trout and Invasion Part 1, and this episode simply named Invasion at the same time. It turns out a mistake was made, but that wasn't it. The Troughton episodes had been erased long before this was erased, and this episode wasn't even slated for erasure, so it was a mistake, all right. The result is that for years, if we U.S. fans ever saw the story in syndication, it was run without the first episode. It started with episode two. Hmm. It's bizarre. On the grounds that viewers wouldn't want to watch a hybrid of black and white and color in the same story, which of course was ridiculous because we, we have and we do. When BBC Video released the story as the last ever VHS release of the Doctor Who story, they did include the episode in black and white. When it came time to do the story on DVD, it turned out there wasn't enough color info in the filmed copy to reproduce all of the original color signal. Strangely enough, the blue was missing. And so if you see the color version on DVD, it's only a rough approximation of what the episode looks like because it's not quite crisp and clear in the same way that other colorized versions are. As a matter of fact, when colorization first came out in the 80s, it, it looks like that sort of colorization. So it's kind of awful. I feel like this is fertile ground for some kind of conspiracy theory about who arranged for the destruction of all the episodes named Invasion and also sucked the blue out. Yes. <laughs> it's, all, it's all very expiled. <laughs> it, it is a little bit. I, I, would, I would blame the deep state. <laughs> I think they're running the BBC. <laughs> so one more thing about the televised story before we talk about the book. The casting in this one is phenomenal. We have Peter Miles who would go on to play Tragen in that unfortunate radio play we just read the novelization of. Mm. He played Whitaker and would go on to play Niter in Genesis of the Daleks next season. We have John Bennett, who would go on to play a main character, I'm, I'm saying a main character, in The Talents of Wing Chiang, whose casting has gone on to be one of the bigger controversies among Doctor Who fans, and we'll talk about that when we get there. We have Martin Jarvis, who not only appeared as one of the Monoptera in The Web Planet, but he'd also later appear in Vengeance on Veros, and he played Butler, albeit without a scar. And my favorite bit of casting is Carmen Silvera, who appeared in The Celestial Toymaker and who'd go on to greater fame as Renee's put-upon wife in the comedy Allo Allo. Edith, we must keep those onion sellers happy. Should I sing a song for him? No. <laughs> I want you to go into the kitchen and do something unforgettable. Really? 
He had not said that to me since April 1940. And she's Ruth in the story. There's an insane amount of good acting here, which makes those puppets stand out even worse by comparison. Now, I have a Target reprint of this book, which has just a lovely understated cover of a Tyrannosaurus Rex standing in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. You do not. You have the original cover featuring the Dr. Menace by Pterodactyl with the sound effects <laughs> <to> clack. <laughs> I named one of my pets in Warcraft, um, Kaklak. Yes, that's brilliant. It is one of the most charmingly hokey covers ever done for the Target range, and I love it to pieces. When Pinnacle Books released this book in America back in the 1970s, it was the last of the books to be reprinted here, and they, of course, went with something more somber, not nearly so much fun. (laughs) But BBC Books, when they reprinted this in 2016, reproduced this cover albeit on a black and white background. So they must have liked the clack as much as anybody. So there we have it. That's all the information I'm going to give you on this one. But we do need a dramatic reading of the back cover. And Trey, I appreciate your dramatic background. So I'm going to let you, as our guest of honor, do the honors of doing a dramatic reading of the back cover for us, if you will. I'm not sure if I have the same back cover as you do, because I've got the 2016 reprint in my hand. Oh, okay. Well, we can do multiples. That's fine. Through the windscreen, the doctor could see the gigantic shape of a Tyrannosaurus Rex blocking the road. The doctor and Sarah arrive in London to find it deserted. The city has been evacuated as prehistoric monsters appear in the streets. While the doctor works to discover who, or what, is bringing the dinosaurs to London, Sarah finds herself trapped on a spaceship that left Earth months ago, traveling to a new world. Against the odds, the doctor manages to trace the source of the dinosaurs. But will he and the brigadier be in time to unmask the villains before Operation Golden Age changes the history of planet Earth and wipes out the whole of human civilization? That is a very different back cover than what we have. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Dolphin spoilers all the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all the spoilers. <laughs> all the spoilers all the time. Well, it is called Dinosaur Invasion, crying out loud. And this yeah. one, the version we read starts with perhaps the least interesting first sentence that we've ever read on the back of one of these books. <laughs> Go ahead, Allison. No, I think you nominated Dalton. Oh, have I really? I don't remember doing that. Um, Dalton, you've been nominated. If if you choose to accept this mission, you may. I, I, I think I can handle it. Yes, yes, you got okay. it. The doctor walked slowly forward into the cul-de-sac. The giant dinosaur turned its head to focus on the midget now approaching. The doctor aimed his gun to fire. Suddenly from behind came a great roar of anger. He spun round. Blocking the exit from the narrow street towered a Tyrannosaurus Rex, its savage jaws dripping with blood. The doctor and Sarah arrive back in the TARDIS to find London completely deserted, except for the dinosaurs. Has the return of these prehistoric creatures been deliberately planned? And if so, who can be behind it all? Well, not who, obviously, because he's busy with a midget. What <laughs> midget are they talking about? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the doctor is the midget. Wait. Oh, the giant dinosaur turned its head to focus on the midget. The midget! Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. It's Almost used every time. Many times. Yes. Um, anytime a di- dinosaur POV is there, we get the word midget. Yeah. Oh, so there's But the first the- couple oh, of times I was confused. I thought, who's the midget? <laughs> 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 That's the doctor. Is the midget. It sounds okay. like a children's party game. Who's the midget? <laughs> <laughs> it's discouraged nowadays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
especially pin the tail on the midget. Yes. Jesus God, that gets bloody very quickly. So where do we start with this one? Oh my God. Yeah. First impressions. <laughs> way back in the day when you first read this, Trey, what were your first impressions of it? So way back in the day when I first read it, it <laughs> I would have been around eight or nine. And I hadn't seen it on television yet because this was in the era where they would put some Pertwees on, but not others, like any of the ones that had sort of technical issues. So, But I was in that phase that I think many boys go through where you just really fucking love dinosaurs and know everything about dinosaurs. So I was really excited. And, and I remember feeling that a lot was happening that didn't have to do with dinosaurs. And I kind of gave up reading it. And it wasn't until I reread it around middle school and then again in high school that I began to appreciate it more for the story that it was trying to tell. Because if you're looking for a good monster story with I wanted basically, even though it hadn't been a figment in my imagination, I was hoping for something more like Jurassic Park. And instead, I get this very sort of depressing philosophical book about golden ages and secret spaceship bunkers. And as a child, when I first read this, I was very disappointed because I was hoping for a lot more dino action. <laughs> don't we all don't we all wish for more dino action right now? Somehow that set the Chef Boyardee dinosaurs jingle playing in my head from probably <laughs> that same era. Oh. Did it really? What was your first impression, Allison? Well, you told us it was the last Hulk we'd be reading, so I had higher expectations because, as I never tire saying, really enjoyed uh, Colony in Space and The Green Death. So I expected a lot more thoughtfulness than we got. Yeah, the dinosaurs are, yeah, turn out to be merely a distraction device. It's not really about dinosaurs per se. I still feel kind of sideways about this one. So, so let me think further on that. Okay, that's fine. Dalton, what was your first impression? Yeah, I agree. Definitely wanted more dinosaur action. And yeah, with Allison, I, I feel like some of the writing just kind of was flat for me. Um, I'm kind of under underwhelmed by it. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with the story or necessarily uh, Hulk's writing or a mixture of the two. But yeah, this one, this one definitely felt kind of flat for me. That makes some sense because if I remember correctly, this is a book and a story that many fans feel very conflicted about, not just because of the plot, but also because of the political implications and, of course, the dinosaurs, because you can't divorce the dinosaurs from it. At least on the page, you don't have to look at the damn things. <laughs> yes. So last fall, I watched the first, not sure, about three to five episodes of the new CW Batwoman show. And man, it was not good. It was very disappointing. But I watched several episodes of it because the a lot of the exteriors were done in Chicago, even though a lot of it was, was filmed elsewhere. And they had these terrific aerial shots of the city. And the thing that was most striking to me in the first couple of episodes is they have a premise where there's been so much supervillain activity in the city that's visibly on exterior Chicago. They're about to hold a movie in the park as the first public event in three years. And that same episode, we see like a sort of National Guard or security forces type checkpoint at one of the bridges over the river. And so even though it was not good writing and the cast wasn't good at first, maybe that improved. It was so arresting to see this sort of Chicago under siege as something that 
could be possible that I'd watched a few episodes. And I, I felt similarly about this book. I had higher expectations for it than it fulfilled, but this idea of a central London that was being evacuated and they were both running from looters and also afraid of being an interned indefinitely or killed as looters, that it was a lot more topical than that book would have been if we read it for our very last episode. So I think the parts that I found striking this time were very circumstantial to when I read it or to when we read it this last week. We had a whole week with the bridges were up for seven days, no transit in and out of downtown. Let me bring listeners up to speed, just in case you are listening to this in the far future, future. We're actually recording this on June 7th of 2020, and we have just been through, uh, it's an understatement to say a hellish week of protests because of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and Chicago is one of the cities that has definitely been just wrecked by it to some degree. We're definitely feeling it, and this book seems to speak to it quite a bit, along with various other things that have to do with political movements and the idea of true believers and orthodoxy and things of that nature. Before we jump into all that, though, let's just get the particulars out of the way, because we always like to talk about whether or not the book is handling the characters well. So let's talk about whether or not this is a good representation to us of the Third Doctor and of Sarah and of the Brigadier, and particularly of Mike Gates. In fact, I, I'm sound effects all around. There. Yeah, I'm half tempted to start there because I specifically did not tell Dalton or Allison what was going to happen, and I'm wondering how much of a surprise that was. A tremendous one. Yeah, for sure. Really? Okay. Is it one that you felt was pulled off well? Yes, because I never liked him. <laughs> well, I think in the last episode that Liz uh, Joe was in, I think I referred to him as Box of Rocks, Mike Yates, <laughs> and said I was so relieved that he hadn't been the love interest she ultimately left with. Keep in mind, I haven't seen the performance and what the actor brings to the part, but in the book, he was just this sort of, to me, this romantic menace. <laughs> <laughs> the, the authors were going to the phantom yes yeah, no no he was very present and real we're going to pair joe up with this extremely unimaginative character mm. it was fine by himself but like i said I did hold that uh, danger in my mind i did really like that his previous experience was shown to change him mm. because usually terrible things happen to people in these stories and then they're the ancillary characters are back popped up into position in the next story just sort of shaking it off in a way that doesn't really make sense for people who are not intergalactic adventurers. Yep. So uh, it reminded me of the premise is ultimately revealed in The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan film, The Village, and we see the flashback of the establishment of The Village. And it was formed by the leader and members of a support group for trauma survivors. And they mm. decided to found this idealistic colony that it actually did sort of rang more true and human for me than most of anything, most anything we've read about Mike Yates before. Not that he seemed artificial, but he's usually just a body to keep the plot moving forward. Mm -hmm. So character development, in other words, which is something that is a bit of a rarity at this time, if it's not a companion, for instance. Well, we have characters like that who turn, but they're always guest stars. And he's recurred in a couple of dozen stories now, right? Yeah. Yeah. What mm -hmm. actually, so it very much surprised me uh, that he turned out to be the double agent, although one of the blog posts you sent us to read about this pointed out that almost everyone is in on the plot in this one. Um, <laughs> yes. It also 
after that shocked me that he survived the story because he had self-sacrifice written on his forehead and his backside. I absolutely (laughs) expected him to throw himself between the doctor and a dinosaur or something similar to that, or to somehow sacrifice himself to blow up the project or something similar to that. So the fact that he, to the best of my memory, makes it out alive was also interesting. Right. I think there may be a reason why. Dalton, was it as much a surprise for you? Yeah, for, for, for many of the same reasons as Allison. Yeah, he's always kind of been a character that I don't get much of a grasp on other than, yeah, he's just kind of there as a, a fill-in when they need him in the story. And so, yeah, I, I was wondering too, you know, we've had instances of characters being written off of the show for disputes with writers or directors or they're leaving to go to another job. So I just thought this may be an instance of that. Um, yeah, and I totally expected him to bite it in the end. Um, <laughs> or be bitten by it. <laughs> or, or, be, or be bitten by it. Yeah, it just, it seemed... From the little bit that I've grasped of him, it didn't seem kind of uncharacteristic, especially given his his history with the doctor and with the brigadier and working in unit. So it, it just seemed like, oh, okay, that's weird and strange and out of left field, but... Okay. Trey, you obviously get a, have listened to the episode, so you get a sense of how we feel about Mike Yates. How have you felt about him as a character, and also, especially in the books? Well... I remember watching the series and, you know, it was all a little bit out of order. So, and because I never actually finished the dinosaur invasion, because I think at the time it was one of the books that was too hard for me as a kid. I remember seeing loving stories like Claws of Axos or Day of the Daleks where Yates is one of the team. He's one of the gang. And I do remember the shot in when they say the man from units appeared and you see Mike Yates kind of betraying everyone. I remember as a kid being, being very stunned by that. That was, you know, a major sort of heel turn in Doctor Who that just wasn't happening. So then when you read the book afterwards, I felt like it was very heavily foreshadowed. But then again, hindsight is 2020. You know, there's a nice scene where he and Sarah are having a debate about whether London is nicer now. When I've been in quarantine these past few months at our my house in the suburbs where everything's you know peaceful, being out in the yard and hearing the birds and just kind of being away from the hubbub, on one level, I find that very relaxing and reinvigorating. And then I also find myself missing life as we knew it in, a, in ways that I hadn't expected to. Mm-hmm. And so that conversation, which is supposed to be kind of like a, the first element of foreshadowing, that really struck me this time around. And I didn't, I didn't connect so much to like some of the civil unrest that we're seeing, but the whole idea of the world has changed and do we mourn what's gone or do we embrace the change? And again, it leaves me feeling very conflicted. I like, that a, I like a book that can make me feel conflicted. And I think oh, it shows maturity in this book that it's a silly adventure book, but there's some pretty heavy themes. And I remember then as a middle school person reading and being able to understand it, really wrestling with what should happen to Mike Yates? And we're kind of going off track, but one of the things that this story, and this is why I wanted to be part of this podcast, is it really was one of the first books where it wasn't about good guys or bad guys, but misguided people doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, or maybe even from a certain point of view, even the right thing. And that really struck me at the time and that it was around the same time that I began doubting a lot of my own religious stuff, but was very conflicted about that. So it's an important book for me. Another interesting thing about Mike Yates is that often in a story like this, we would find that he had been misled, that he thought that he was part of a sting operation or had somehow been misdirected by higher ups. And so it was actually a second surprise that he knew the plan and he knew what he was doing and 
this is what he had chosen. Yeah. As opposed to being deceived by the general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, there is some implication, obviously, that in Malcolm Hulk's last story, The Green Death, his brainwashing by boss may have made him more susceptible to this sort of thing. But ultimately, that's a little bit of a cop-out. It actually has a lot more narrative punch to believe that he is this misguided, idealistic young man who is probably in the wrong profession to have those beliefs. And they have caused his entire worldview to be utterly skewed. Also, he was brainwashed by essentially a supercomputer, not an alien life form or anything else sort of natural and biological. Mm -hmm. He was brainwashed by a supercomputer in service to a super corporation that was producing these deadly products. So it actually does make sense that he would become the ultimate back to nature (laughs) or (laughs) utopian based on the nature of what happened to him. True. And in a very fascistic, uh, yeah, fascist, I can't say that fucking word, uh, in a very kind of totalitarianistic sense, too, because the people behind Operation Golden Age, is, as you said, Trey, they're not bad people, they're not villains traditionally, and yet they are doing something that is, on the face of it, absolutely horrific. Right. And I think, I mean, just something that fascinates me about this book, because you were saying fascist, um, you know, and on a certain level, is this a right wing a criticism of like conservatism or is it a conservative a critique of, you know, far leftism? And I think it reminds me a lot of The Sunmakers in which you could do a very right-wing reading of it or a very left-wing reading on it, depending on your views. Because on one level, they kind of talk like the left-wing as far as environmentalism, you know, look at all the pollution, look how capitalism destroyed things, let's start over. But there's also a conservatism that's, let's, this yearning for, they're basically saying, make Earth great again. (laughs) You, You know, and so there's, and I find it interesting that the two of the true believers, Ruth and Sir Charles are both from the aristocracy. She's from the House of Lords, and he's a Sir Charles. You know, are they kind of the ultimate of that sort of the white liberal who is still in a position of authority, or, and they make the right noises, but they're still kind of villainous, controlling it? And so I, th- I think it's an interesting and challenging book because the politics are all over the place, and I think people will see in it what they want to see in it. At times, it does feel like maybe it's also a story that can put many of Doctor Who fans, because Doctor Who fans too, do skew liberal, in my opinion, and an experience, it's going to put people on the defense. So I, I, think it's, I think it's a fascinating book in that regard. It's a bit like the paradox of health food stores a few years ago. This is less the case now that too much concern about organic eating is, is mainstream, but it used to be that you would rub elbows with the most conservative religious people and the Wiccas and the free love commune people. I'm exaggerating a little bit, all at the health food store because- Well, it's homeschooling now. Right, right. It has long been homeschooling, you know, very conservative religious homeschooling, but not necessarily the same religion. You have very conservative white evangelical homeschooling, conservative Catholic homeschooling. Uh, There's definitely a a Hasidic form of of homeschooling in certain areas where there's not a broader community. And then you have unschooling and you just play with a sheep till you're 12 years old. (laughs) An exaggeration of unschooling. Oh, I think there was a lot of unschooling that happened these last two months, I can tell you that. (laughs) 
and all and all these people met to buy bulk organic peanut butter uh, because well well but there was an ideal of how one should live what is the natural or we could say in some cases supernatural state of humanity when humanity is living in the way that it ought to and there are often those common elements of what is the human's relationship well, the word purity comes to mind. Like yes. there's a sense of wanting to purify the earth and purify the human race because we, we are certainly not a perfect species. And speak so yourself, I think this, I didn't hear what Allison said there. She said, speak for yourself, Trent. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. And you get this from religious groups and you, you get this from political groups. You can be perfect, but if there's even just one spot, I remember like my religious upbringing, like, you know, even if you had the smallest speck of sin, that would prevent you from getting into heaven. You know, it was never quite good enough. And of course, what happens, and I think this is what we were talking about earlier, is, you know, especially with in my experience, I think me coming out or stumbling out was a big part of it. Well, once you figure out you're already going to hell or you're not going to be good enough, then what's, what's to prevent me from just rolling in the mud and enjoying it? <laughs> and, so, and I think that that characterizes a lot of people once they reject that sort of puritanism, whichever form it may take, then it's very easy to say like, well, I'm already damned. I'm already impure. So what the fuck? I'll do whatever. And mm. I think we're seeing elements of that happening this past week. And we're also seeing people who insist on an orthodoxy of thought on both sides and insisting on that orthodoxy under the guise of, well, this is good for you. This is good for everybody. This is the way things should be. And it's really quite disturbing because it reminds us that as well as there being a far right, there is also a far left. And the worst elements in that far left movement tend to be the moderates. They do tend to be the people who say, oh, well, of course we should do this this way because this is going to be good for everybody. But the Operation Golden Age people have taken that way too far and have become just as much true believers in their own project as, say, the KKK or the Proud Boys. They're, they're kind of terrifying in that regard. Especially, and this is something very telling about this book, the biggest change that Hulk makes is to the ending. In the ending, in the televised version, when the people in Operation Golden Age find out what has happened and what is going to happen, there is no question that they're all against it. That's very different on the page, where you have some of the members saying, well, we've gone this far with it, we might as well do it. Why shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that is a big difference. Yeah. And it's also more realistic that way. Because, of course, if someone's going to be radical enough to leave Earth and do so secretly and give up their bank jobs and their aristocracy and whatever to do this huge project for the betterment of themselves, they're not going to give that up very lightly. So it's rather surprising that it's only Whitaker and Sir Charles that get sent back in time. Well, that's something that I really dislike about the book. I like that it, he does that with the ending, but there are so many plot threads left dangling. Like, what happens to these people? What happens to General yeah. Finch? What happens to Yates? What happens to Ruth and Mark? Do they just go back to business? They're not even like a hand wave paragraph that just kind of explains what happened. And, and, and Hulk does this in The Green Death. His endings are very abrupt. Once he's gotten off his chest what he wants to say and he makes a statement, then he, he, I get the feeling that he's done and he doesn't want to... Resolution is something that he, he's not very good at. That definitely is the case. And we saw something of this, though, when we did our discussion of Paradise of Death, that there is this 
huge thing going on. The Paracon is trying to get in touch with Earth to, you know, distribute uh, Rapine. And that is going to fall apart, obviously, but we never hear about that. Just as we never hear what happens with all the people who are involved with Operation Golden Age, even though it sounds like it would have been a massive government conspiracy. This is the sort of thing that brings down governments. I thought we might have a chat with Mike Yates in the next story. Is that going to happen? No. Oh, not in the next story. Is he he going to continue to appear as a character? Once. We will only see him one more time. Will he be foaming at the mouth? Um, No. (laughs) No, strangely enough. In fact, we'll probably get the one instance of Mike Yates, which might make you like the character a bit. Well, this one, like I said, did make him interesting. Before, he wasn't unlikable so much as just extremely forgettable. Yeah, that's true. He's not going to be forgettable next time we see him. I feel like the things that Hulk usually explores in such an interesting way were left untouched here. Okay. Uh, so you uh, you sent us a couple of blog posts to read about this, and uh, Mr. Doctor Who Putridham uh, <laughs> <laughs> of Wixsite.com talks about the colonial aspects of the project and the that our attention is drawn to Cromwell and Ireland and the Pilgrims. And mm-hmm. I thought one thing that was interesting about their project is that unlike all other colonial projects, there are no people already there to be displaced. Right. If I understood the plan correctly. So it would oh, be like, for new... example, the attempted, you know, colonization back to Liberia, for example, where there were already people there. If I understood correctly, the Operation Golden Age plan was to go back to before humans. Is that right? Yes. And I think that actually could be an interesting premise. Instead of colonizing and replacing and or bringing into conformity a human society that's already there, they would just create it from scratch mm-hmm. without this sort of foundational sin of, of conquest or slaughter and Book of Joshua type beginning to their society. And that wasn't really explored at all. Right. It gets name checked a little bit because you do have that interesting dialogue between Mark and Sarah about the <clears throat> Red Indians mm-hmm. and how they would have felt about the Pilgrim Fathers coming and displacing them. So there's the implication that the people who were involved with Operation Golden Age actually believe that there are indigenous inhabitants. And then that was dropped because I thought and they would mm-hmm. get into, well, here's here's who we expect to be on this planet. We expect to meet these intelligent life forms, and of course we're better than them. Or of course they are superior to us, and here's how we plan to interact with them. Or no, there's actually no one there. I mean, it's just plants, what we would think of as very simple other creatures. So we didn't even have an establishment of what the scenario would be on the other planet in the the minds of the colonists. Right. Spaceship subplot is almost... The original novel didn't follow this, and the movie came out in 79, but this is the plot of Moonraker. Yeah, it is actually. You know, like taking like we're gonna like ha- we're gonna wipe out life on Earth and we're gonna have using spaceships or like fake spaceships, you know, and then create this society that we think is perfectly in order and replace and start over. I mean that that's that's Moonraker. So here's <laughs> what confuses me. Malcolm Holt wrote this and he wrote Colony in Space. 
right? He wrote the story for both or just yes, the novel? Yes, edition? Okay. Both. It reads like someone making fun of or criticizing Colony in Space. It and does. I don't quite know, well, I don't know off the top of my head know which one is written first uh, in terms of the novelizations. And I don't know whether I'm imagining things or he was just phoning this one in and the the Dixian way that we've grown accustomed to with the later Terrence Dix adaptations. But this is a mission very similar to the one described to us as Colony in Space. And they were going to a planet that they believed initially, I think, to be unoccupied. That wasn't the case. And they were fleeing an Earth that was so industrially built up that we had this, the the memorable phrase about humans living as battery hens. The colonists and space colonists were very sympathetic and shown as idealists who are trying to get back to a true humanity in a way that Hulk presented as a more truly human way of living than what the completely industrialized, gridded up Earth had become. They were not the villains. They were wrong about what to expect. They were completely unprepared. They were menaced by the mining corporation, but they were essentially the tragic heroes of that book. And here are the colonists who are seeking a very similar mission, and if anything, more idealistic and innocent uh, in that they don't expect to colonize any sentient beings at all. And the treatment of them is much more cynical. I'm kind of still noodling it around with my mind what he's trying to do there. I I, I hear that. I I guess I don't see it as inherently being a conflict because the way I read it is because he has established that this can be a noble motive. I think he's sending a message that good people, well-intended people, Mark and Adam are saying, you know, as far as they know, they volunteered for this. They don't believe they're hurting anyone. Now, Grover and Whitaker are like, okay, you know, they haven't told him, oh, by the way, we're going to wipe out the people that you left behind. And that, because that's a whole different ballgame. Like, it's one thing to like replace, it's one place to escape. I think we can look at Colony in Space, Doomsday Weapon, as why did this uh, plan appeal? Why were people so vulnerable to this manipulation? Why did people sign up for the spaceship plan? Mm -hmm. And I think it makes it more believable that. You know, and, and we see it now. I mean, we, and this is where, again, I think it becomes very timely. I mean, the sentiment of burn it all to the ground. I mean, I understand. I don't necessarily agree with burning it all to the ground, but like right. I, I see where that comes from because people do get fed up and people get fed up, not just in the future dystopia, but in the now. And the, the question is, once you burn it down, what sort of world it replaces it? And that's, that's the tough question. I, I don't see that as contradictory. I see it as how good movements can be hijacked by extremists. And so that's kind of what I, that's how I've always interpreted the story, that most of the people on that spaceship are good people who have not been told the full picture and are being manipulated. And, and it's easy to understand how they've been manipulated because their concerns are legit. Mm-hmm. But they have a very different social experiment going, even though the outlines of get on a spaceship and start a better society are the same. In Colony in Space, they didn't have a brainwashing room. Right. And there was a sort of darker implication here with, um, who's the former firefighter who has a scar on his face? Butler. Butler. I thought Butler was supposed to be the symbol of the fact that they would just take all the usual human, human problems back with them. Um, as Butler sits there and silently, violently, graphically ideates about the different ways he'd like to smash Whitaker's face. I thought the implication there, and then the way Butler's later developed, is he's not a terrible person, but 
he's an example of all the human vices that they will take to their colony oh. with them and just develop the same problems again in a way that we didn't have as much of as colony of space. I feel like it was still a much darker set of colonists, even though they were ideological. I just, the, the fact that they were lied to and then systematically brainwashed, they were lied to that they would be going to a colony in space but then apparently there was a need for even these people who had been recruited as volunteers to be periodically subjected to the brainwashing technique uh, that had a much darker overtone before that I uh, than in Colony in Space, where they were just underprepared. Uh, that I right. I wondered if something had shifted in Hulk's view of intentional communities and and those sort of ideological experiments. And I don't know if he wrote about it. I was telling Tony this. I'm pretty sure I read in like one of the magazines or something that he identified as a Christian socialist, but he was a communist. He was a member of like the British Communist Party off and on again throughout. So he was, he was very left. But the story I've told myself, like if if he also had a religious thing, if you if you are a communist, if you are so far left as socialist, um, pick your label, but who also has a religious belief, imagine how crushing it would be to see China and the Soviet Union who took the ideas of the revolution and then stamped out religion or, you know, and then would have done his freedom. So I think, I think what he's doing is he's looking at how so many places that, you know, at least paid lip service to Marxism or where revolution started out with legit concerns. And then the utopia didn't happen. It was, and it was replaced by, you know, all the things that we know about what was coming out of Soviet Russia and, and all that. So I think there might be some of him reacting that sort of disillusionment could be very understandable. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe. And I thought that the green death had what <clears throat> seemed like, to me a lot of commentary on the Soviet experiment. But it was a different different variety of cynicism, maybe. And I'm still it's still unsettled in my mind. I'm still sort of turning it over. Dalton, it sounded like you had a point to make there. Just just with the, the idea about the religion, it just makes me think about mission trips and how that ah. in and of itself is a form of colonialism. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Going into these areas where people are living their lives however they see fit and taking something that is meant to be good intentioned and kind of destroying whole cultures. I mean, it's even, you know, we're talking about the idea of going to a new land and starting anew. That's the story of America. The, the idea that the Puritans came here and, and lots of other Christian sects came here to be able to worship freely. And then they start to impose their own religious views upon um, Native Americans. And, you know, we saw it happening in Africa. We saw it happening in in Africa. Africa. We saw it happening in all over the planet. Christianity is supposed to be positive. It's supposed to be good. But religion in and of itself is a religion in and of itself is a when it's abusive structure. And in the 70s, when he was writing that, there was that whole, that's when that whole idea of liberation theology really took hold. And so this idea of, and and, and and now I'm like, I'm looking into some queer theology because I'm dealing with my own shit as far as my own religious upbringing. And I wonder if Hulk would have been influenced by any of the liberation theology that would have been considered. Whereas like some people would say, well, no religion whatsoever. If you, you know, in our perfect society, you know, there's, there should be no religion. And if Malcolm Hulk was a religious person, it's hard to read this book with all the Bible men- 
references and the religious references to think that he was a secularist. I mean, there, it feels like something like a Christian would write, even if it's, well, I don't know. It could very well be what the uh, poster on Dr. Who Putered Ham was talking about, that it's not so much Hulk himself is of a religious bent. It's that it's easy for him to use Christian ideology to show that there's a shared experience among the Operation Golden Age, for instance, all take on new names, and those names happen to be biblical names. We have Adam, we have Ruth, we have Mark. That's not a mistake, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the writer himself may have held any strongly sure. religious views, but he would have been born and raised in that sort of culture because obviously every school child reading this book in 1976 would also have gotten a lot of those references. There wouldn't have been nearly as many British school children who didn't have some sort of at least basic religious background, even in well, the uh, CV. Well, they, and, and they're required to. I mean, one of the ironies is that the UK is a much less religious nation than ours, but religious education is still required in what we would call public schools, government schools, where they, they learn about religious studies as part of the curriculum. Um, which is very verboten in our public schools. Yeah, and that does make it a little more difficult to read this and think, oh, and this is some situation. But it could very well be, if we look at it this way, it could very well be someone who comes from a secularist point of view saying, okay, here are the good things about religion. Here are the bad things about religion. Sure. They do coexist, and they're mm-hmm. very much in opposition to each other. That we have evangelicals now who are looking at these protests and saying, yes, this needs to happen. And some are turning against fearless leader for that stunt that he pulled in front of the church, holding the Bible upside down. Hmm. Yeah. That it is possible for those two things to coexist within one belief system. And it may very well have been that Hope was trying to show that dichotomy going on within what would have been the majority religion for just about everybody reading his book at the time. And we saw so many biblical and Christian references in the Green Death when various characters were trying to fight the brainwashing of the boss. Yes. And they would go back and forth between biblical quotations or explicitly Christian sayings and Nazi quotations. And my suspicion, and there is something written about this, it's a document that was too expensive for me to obtain about Hulk's background. This is all knowable information that I have not availed myself of, is that he was a non-religious person who both sees the beauty in Christianity because that is the religion that he knows, even if it's not one that he accepts in the sense of that supernatural, but also for his readers, he knows that many of them are going to recognize biblical quotes and they're going to recognize Nazi quotes and they are going to have deep cultural chords that he can touch quite quickly that way. Yes. That he both is using what he finds beautiful in Christianity, even if he doesn't believe in supernatural metaphysical content of Christianity, but it's also a shortcut for him as well. A literary right. shortcut. Yeah, it's a very deft handling of something to be able to put in that shortcut and know that it's going to have the strong resonance that it does. Because this book, as you said, really does have that resonance, just like his other books did. Anytime he put one like of it, these references in, 
lacks that re- that resonance. So, like at the end, the Ezekiel reference is just some chariots of the god stuff that I actually thought was pretty weak. Well, um, it's 1976 after all. Yes, yes, it's very of the moment. But I felt like. So at the very beginning, he has one of his, he has a prologue that's actually more of a Terrence Dick style prologue, but Hulk does them as well, where we have additional material on a character who's either not seen on screen or is just seen on screen without any kind of background whatsoever. Not seen on screen ever. That, mm-hmm. that We've whole got thing Huey who is new. Yeah, eaten by a dinosaur <laughs> when he wakes up with a hangover in London. And that does establish well that the dinosaurs can and will eat you depending on which ones they are. <laughs> and then we have a scene from the perspective of the dinosaur, of a T-Rex, and the T-Rex is coming to... And first of all, Sarah is photographing the dinosaur. And this is really, it felt like the only time in the book we have a sort of a reverie of wonder of how sort of the welcome to Jurassic Park scene. Where there's a, there's a reverie of wonder of she is the first person ever to see this. Yes. Ever to see a dinosaur or to photograph a dinosaur. And that humans had not seen this before because the dinosaurs were gone before the humans. And the dinosaur wakes up partly because of the flash and the dinosaur is adapted to fear lightning. And it's not just a paranoia. It talks about how the dinosaur is very vulnerable to lightning. Those are the only passages that see that I would have picked out as Hulk passages if I were reading this book with the cover ripped off. Really? A lot of it almost felt like someone else was writing. Hmm. Hmm. I felt like it lacked that soul, that, that sort of moral contemplation that he has brought to some of the other stories. Well, it may be fatigue. I mean, this is his next to last novelization. You asked earlier when he did the novelization of Colony in Space, and it was actually one of the first ones. Um, And he did Silurians right after that, back to back. It could very well be that there's a little bit of novelization fatigue going on, or he himself might be struggling with the very problems that he had with the storyline, because um, something I didn't tell you is that it was originally meant to be a very different story. It was Barry Letts who insisted that they include dinosaurs. And so he had to write a story that had dinosaurs, and then they got the puppets and realized, oh, we have to have fewer dinosaurs than we had before. So let's bring this back in. And there's definitely a sense that Hulk may be struggling with trying to whip this script into shape because on screen it feels even less cohesive in some ways. I mean, I think he does he does improve on the screen version very well because all those moments, like at the be- I think the beginning of the book where it's quite gruesome what happens, and I think Tony, your notes mentioned like you know children getting devoured, and yeah, that's like that's that's really grim and so we get all that extra background about the horror of the dinosaurs and what they've done to london but then a lot of the padding that occurs like in the later episodes where the doctor's on the run and that takes up most of episode five and you know he's just he just gets rid of all that he's restructuring plot and making big changes to get rid of the padding to make the dinosaurs more horrific but you still but yeah, they do still seem like a sideshow. And the, the story goes from one genre to another. And when I kind of like the spaceship subplot, but it does turn it into a completely different story all over again. Yeah, it does. The Green Death, the plot ultimately did not make any sense, but I didn't care because they did not have enough interesting things with it. <laughs> Here, ultimately the plot, I wouldn't say I liked it, but it did hang together and make sense. Why are they emptying out London with dinosaurs when they need an empty, empty central London? 
Why do they need an empty central London? Because they need to eliminate everyone outside of this sphere where they have the chosen people. Why are they doing that in central London instead of out in a rural area? Because that's where there's an available nuclear device that they need and can get to. Like That all actually hung together. I just didn't, once again, didn't care because the material around it just wasn't engaging the way that cult material usually is. Well, this might be a good time to bring up uh, Elizabeth Sandifer's take on it, because before we recorded this, I sent all of you the blog post that she wrote eight years ago on Eruditorium Press, and I will put the link to that in the description of this particular episode. And just in case you don't want to stop the program right now and go read what Elizabeth Sandifer has to say about this story, here's some of it. The strong sense is that Hulk just doesn't care anymore and has given up on the program. Certainly his decision not to write for it again suggests that, and it's not hard to see why. Hulk had always opposed the Earthbound format even as he helped set it up. But Hulk was also one of the writers who laid down the basic challenge of the Pertwee era back in the War Games, involvement in more than just blowing up monsters. Instead, he's been stuck writing for an era that prefers star turns, showboating, and visual spectacle to serious looks at society, even when it's doing Earthbound stories. Even when the show does take on real political issues, it's generally been with ham-handed disastrousness, as with Green Death, another story Hulk fixed in novelizing. One gets the sense that Hulk, on some level, knew that the story he wanted to do one about the foolish danger of blind nostalgia and the fact that progress is still a good thing was going to be sold down the river before it hit the screen. Because, frankly, the entire plot of Invasion of the Dinosaurs seems like nothing so much as a rejection of Doctor Who. The central flaw of Operation Golden Age is that it just tries to blow up a problem instead of working to improve the world. That's what the Doctor half-heartedly tries to persuade Mike of, at least. And of course, at the end of things, the Doctor blows up the problem and goes on to run off to Florana with Sarah. He utterly fails to make a single move towards improving the world or presenting a more positive version of the agenda he's supposedly sympathetic to. And Hulk ends up exposing this hypocrisy directly by confronting him with a situation in which he has no choice but to expressly praise the exact sort of person he isn't being in the story. This is staggeringly bitter of Hulk, an utterly cynical decision to cast the Doctor as no better than the villains. Indeed, it's flagrantly Sarah, not the Doctor, who Hulk views as the primary hero of the story. And it's fitting that the Pertwee era's most moralistic writer finally turns the lens onto the Pertwee era in this regard. This isn't just Hulk quitting the show, it's him penning a demonstration of why, in his eyes, the show has failed. And now back to our discussion. Her claim is that this is Hulk kind of rejecting Doctor Who and giving up on it and saying, there's no way that any of my ideals are going to be fully realized in the show. So let's just make a very bitter refutation of it. Does any part of her argument ring true to you or do you think she's off a bit on this? I definitely agreed with her that Sarah's more the star of this than the Doctor is. Mm -hmm. This was an almost negative portrayal of the Doctor. 
Really? In what way? He's very dismissive of Sarah in an almost Hartnell-esque way that is not, he's neither proven right nor sees himself to be wrong, mm. nor is it handled in all that humorous of a way. And yeah, he just seems kind of annoyed. But it's not like Hartnell where he's ahead of the game and he's annoyed at the slowness of his companions who just haven't seen the big picture yet. Right. And it's not one of the scenes like we've seen before where the doctor is kind of brisk and dismissive and then later acknowledges to the companion, oh, you were actually quite insightful about this, or you were right, or oh, whatever, <laughs> or in some other way addresses it and says, I was right, or, or you were right. It's just more like he's kind of dickish in a way that's not, but it doesn't seem like very explicit commentary in the way that Sandifer was saying. It almost seems like he it's the, the body double for the Doctor, and we're mm -hmm. just seeing the B-unit footage, and they actually never bring in Pertwee. Um, and I don't know oh. if the episode plays like that at all, but we show Sarah screaming way too much in ways that I blame on the story, um, but also being on top of the situation more than the Doctor is. And so we've seen, this is the third story that we have read with her and only the second that's actually a canonical aired episode and we've seen them having largely separate adventures right within those stories and that continues here but she is the one who has all of the aha moments that are about the broader parameters of the situation and his are purely technical and scientific and he almost is written as flatly as a brigadier i thought I could neither accept nor reject her premise that, <laughs> in my own mind, that he's criticizing Doctor Who. I just, I guess I'm talking in circles to say, I don't know what he's doing here. I don't think he's criticizing Doctor Who. I think, mm. um, think everything about like what Allison was saying about Sarah is true. And I think knowing what's coming up in the next four stories, I, that's a pattern I hadn't been aware of, but it's actually really there. And mm -hmm. so I think that's, and I think that might be because she's, Joe Grant was the assistant, whereas Sarah is an investigative reporter. What does a reporter do? She investigates. So I think that might almost be in the character brief that she's going to go out and do things on her own. Um, I thought it was very cleverly used here. She figures things out <clears throat> using that skill set while the doctor is right. investigating things scientifically. <clears throat> she actually is ahead of things by following those breadcrumbs. And then she'll be doing some more of that. And I, I, I like that part of and I think it was, was it in the Paradise of Death one where Tony was saying late, towards the end of her run as a companion, she reverts more to type. But we're in this interesting journalist phase of hers, which I, I think works well. So I love reading Elizabeth Sandifer's work. Uh, it's really always a very challenging take, a very original take. She always creates a very, she's, she reminds me of some of my students who can construct an argument and take the text evidence to prove that argument. But I think they're completely off as far as speaking for the author's intent. Like, mm -hmm. I think this falls into it. I don't think Malcolm Hawk is hating on Doctor Who. Maybe he, he did because this was his last story. I don't know. But I think that might have to do with more of the production team, you know, Hinchcliffe or whatever is going to take over next season. And just for whatever reason, doesn't use Hall. But I also think having read a lot of Sanifer's work where she is very steeped in critical theory, very far leftism. And so my judgment is, is it the doctor that's, that Hulk is criticizing or are, is Sandifer being a defensive reader because part of her politics might be under scrutiny here? And so, mm -hmm. is it, and that was the story that I told myself in, in reading that because, you know, I would say Sandifer is one of the more radical Doctor Who commentators out there. And again, always a great read, 
but sometimes I'm thinking, okay, what were you smoking right now? So it's, <laughs> you know, but uh, she did a thing on the three doctors that was all about William Blake's poetry and uh, it's really trippy and oh, it kind of works, but it's kind of like, whoa, I think you're reading too much into that. But, um, <laughs> but if that brings people joy, I, I think, you know, that the whole idea of deliberately reading things from a an angle just to see what happens i think she's very good at that and always gives us something to chew on true dalton what did you think of it it didn't feel extremely intentional it doesn't feel like an, an attack per se yeah the story is focused more on the companion the doctor is secondary it doesn't feel like hulk is just outright trying to shake his fist at his master it's not it's not anything like that to me it doesn't feel that way okay I'm going to sally forth tally-ho and go full donation of Constantine on this one. Okay. I think with zero exterior evidence whatsoever, just based on the Hulk novels I've read in this one, that either someone else wrote large sections of this book or edited the living hell out of it. Seriously. I have no evidence to back me up other than a gut feeling based on the other book, but I... I can't figure out what else he's... The whole thing is a Canadian zip code to me. <laughs> <laughs> there are letters in here. <laughs> okay. If, if an American gives you the wrong zip code for their zip code, you don't notice it unless you're already familiar with the zip code or you look it up and find out that it doesn't line up with the address you're given. Mm -hmm. If someone gives you a Canadian zip code for an American address... You ask what the hell is going on because there are letters in it instead of just digits. Some gut part of me says, without any evidence at all, that there's a lot of this that he didn't write. Hmm. Someone else okay. ghost wrote. I, I so we've talked about this before with the Celestial that. Toy Baker, where Tony, <laughs> you thought you knew who had written a lot of that book. Yeah, but there actually is some evidence for that one because yeah. her name happens to be on the book. Yes. So this is purely an, a declaration of hubris on my part. Hmm. Well, I could see an editor getting at this. The problem with that theory is that the Target series didn't have as much of an editor at the point that this was written. There's, there's nothing that would have come up in that. Like I've read the Target book, which is like the book about the Target books. And um, there's, there's nothing to suggest that. So if, yeah. if that is the case, it's a very well-kept secret. Here's the part that gets me where it doesn't because and again, like where it's I feel like it's politics over its place. And I've been wanting to bring this up is what the hell is going on with the characterization of Whitaker? And why is he coded as a homosexual? Yeah. And what point is Hulk trying to make with that? Let's address the pink pterodactyl in the room, shall we? <laughs> and I wanted to ask I wanted to ask Dalton when you were reading that, were you picking up on that as with Whitaker's portrayal and as someone new to the story. It wasn't until I went back and started looking at the notes and seeing everything that was pointed out. I, I didn't pick up on it as much while reading, but looking back at it, it's like, oh yeah, totally. It's, it's there. Tony, what year was the novelization written? 1976. Okay. So 
Coincidentally, one of my projects since getting Disney Plus is rewatching all the animated Disney films in order of release and writing my own little critical reviews of them. And you start picking up a pattern that, starting with maybe Peter Pan and Captain Hook, the shorthand for villain, you start getting this sort of Clifton Webb archetype of Shere Khan and the Prince John and everyone kind of sneering and being very supercilious, very coded as effeminate and homosexual and... But at the moment, I'm searching for a man-cub. Man-cub? What man-cub? The one who's lost. Now, where do you suppose he could be? Search me. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't mind showing me your coils, would you, Carl? Very, you know, dainty. And, the, and there's a line about Whitaker with a well-manicured thing. And, and we're, we're entering that era that happened where the snide, superior homosexuals coded as villain. Like, think about the Bond villains stroking their white cats. And, oh, yeah. Um, so this is definitely of that time period. And we're, we are entering this period where gays are more visible. Mm -hmm. Because on screen... So Peter Miles is playing him as kind of in the same sort of snotty way that he plays the guy from Doctor Who and the Silurians. But it's not, he's not making comments like, oh, he would have been so handsome without that scar. The doctor's very handsome. He, you know, none of that subtext is present, but it's very much there. And we're, and I don't know if it was because now, you know, it's post Stonewall. You have, you know, in the seventies, you've got, this is that era of gay liberation, but before AIDS where, you know, we have movies like Cruising coming out where it's this sort of exotic other that's beginning to get opened up and I don't I'm not one to usually get offended by portrayals but there's part of me that was reading it especially this time around and I was like really Malcolm what the fuck you know what and I think Allison said something about like how these villains are are steeped in vice it makes me wonder does Malcolm Hawk believe homosexuality is a vice or is, is he using it as a shorthand for evil and that makes me kind of reevaluate lots of things that he's written in some ways. And I realize that I can't always look at authors from my 2020 perspective, but it's really bothering me this time around reading the book. Yeah. And it bothers me as well, because I remember clearly when I first read this book, it was the pinnacle version uh, printed in 1979. And I read it fairly soon after that. So it would have been maybe 12 or 13 and, finally realizing my sexuality around that time and i could recognize it i was like oh there's i i wouldn't have used that the word but there's a gay character in this and part of me was excited at the idea of representation but looking at it now it is troublesome because even though as you said trey it does fit into the general trend in the mid-70s, late-70s of gays being presented as villainous, especially, I'm glad you brought up James Bond, I can't remember which movie it is that has the lovers who are homicidal maniacs. Diamonds Are Forever, and that would have been 71, I believe. Yeah, okay. So Mr. Winton, Mr. Kidd. Yes, and they're much more villainous towards the beginning of the decade than they are towards the end, but it's definitely there. Or whether it could just very well be Malcolm Hulk being of a certain generation has that as part of his personal background, which is disturbing in its own right. Well, and I think it's a good lesson because, you know, what we hear about Malcolm Hulk is, oh, he was a progressive, he was leftist, he was very liberal. And, and I think it's easy for people, especially now, to think that a liberal or a progressive 
50 years ago would still be seen as very conservative by today's standards. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And, and on issues of sexuality. Right. Yeah, especially on gender and sexuality, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Orwell was a raging homophobe, for instance, which is something that I always have to come to grips with in the same way as, for example, Lovecraft was a raging racist. Those are very difficult things to have to accept about somebody, but you can see it explicitly in Jerry Davis and Kip Hedler's Mutant 59. There is a character in that book that specifically played as comedy, but it's in, we would look at it now and say, oh, well, that's, that's definitely homophobia. And even as late as, and I'm going to blank out on when he wrote this, when Terrence Dix wrote an Eighth Doctor book, during the period where the Eighth Doctor is suffering from amnesia and is essentially living Oh, it's Endgame. Endgame. And I brought that up at Chicago TARDIS and people just glared at me. It's like, sorry, but that his, his depiction of one of the two British spies in that book, a historical figure, is very homophobic. And he has the doctor being uh, reacting in disgust. At and it came out right after the Turing test where a, a completely different before. author was... Before. No, Endgame came after. I thought because, Turing test came before. Yeah, Turing test comes first and then Endgame because it's the 1940s and then there's the Cold War. Uh, yeah, that you have just this whiplash. Yep. And I remember thinking at the time that it was ridiculous that this should be happening in a book written by somebody who I considered, and still do, considered a hero. But there it is. And it's something to struggle with, especially since there's so much else in this text to struggle with. It's insanity. So why, when Hulk is the master of creating empathy through backstory and inner contemplation, with even the most villainous of characters, do we have nothing of that with Whitaker? That Why do we a- not have any? The, there's backstory that's literally found in like news clippings and, and other people recalling his professional experiences, but we have no moments of reverie for him, no idea of, from his own perspective of why he's doing what he's doing. Even if it were a very negative view, why don't we have any of that for him? And I almost wonder if it, it is coded because like, you know, what can you get away with in a children's book in 1976? Because one of the things I was wondering as I was rereading and thinking, okay, he's coded as gay because he's interested in meeting Oscar Wilde and Noel Coward. And, and then you hear like how he became a pariah in the government and no one would fund his stuff. And so I think you could do a reading where was he outed or because this would have been mm. believable that you've got some good ideas as scientists, but you're a queer, so we're not going to fund your project. We can't be associated mm. with you. And that would have been believable motivation, yeah. except you can't be that forward for the book that you want to write for children in 1976. Mm-hmm. But somehow it just and, doesn't ever get inside of him, get inside of his perspective the way we've seen for other characters in a way that... That is true. Was strange to me. We don't actually spend a lot of time in his head at all. Others talk do. about him and speculate about him. Yeah. In fact, I, I was struck this time that we get a point of view in Grover's head before it's revealed that he is one of the perpetrators of this whole thing. And it doesn't give anything away, but we're inside his head. Whereas we don't enter into Whitaker's head at all. And by the way, I have to apologize to you, Trey. I just looked it up because I thought, wait a minute. I remember reading one another. You're right. Turing Test was written first. I think I read Endgame first. That was mm. the problem. It seems like it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? It seems like there should be a progression 
towards right. more acceptance. Well, it's because the, that arc is about the doctor being stuck in the 20th century without the TARDIS. So it would happen yeah. according to historical Of course period. it would. Yeah, absolutely. And in this, you would think that somebody as progressive as Malcolm Hulk would be a little more understanding. But no, I mean, we're seeing that through this week. <laughs> We're seeing again the white moderate liberal who who wrings their hands at the property damage and the protests and says, well, why are you going the Malcolm X route? Shouldn't you be going the Martin Luther King route? And I say these things because I have either thought or said them at one point in this last week and then realized I was dead wrong. It could very well be that that's what's going on. It's just a shame that it has to happen here on the page where it's much more obvious than just having it as a coded performance on screen where you could actually say, oh, that's just a choice that the actor made. Right. Yeah, it's it's troubling. So much about this book is troubling. Oh, my God. What was done well? In fact, before we go into Goodreads and all that, let's talk <laughs> about what we liked about this book because I, I have a feeling that despite Whitaker being what he is, I liked it a lot better than you guys did. So let's talk about what's good about it. Long silence. Paradoxically, I think everything that we've discussed is what's good about it. I think the fact that it does make us confront very difficult issues about what progress means and at what price progress is and whether humans are fundamentally good or whether, you know, the dangers of nostalgia. I mean, and I think it's very grand. I think maybe he's trying too hard because it's it's a Doctor Who book, but you think about some of these plays that you, you watch them and you just leave them and they're, you know, these modernist plays where they're exploring these very deep issues and you leave the theater just feeling quiet and contemplative and a little bit disturbed, but maybe that's a good thing. And so I think it's a very cynical book. I think it's very negative. I think it's very challenging, but I also think that's its strength. That's exactly why I, I, what I admire about the book. I like that a Doctor Who book has the guts to go there and a way that younger people could actually appreciate and understand. Okay. How about you, Allison, or you, Dalton? What did you find positive? We've already talked about the passages where we get bits from the perspective of some of the different characters, but also from the perspective of the dinosaurs. I feel like those those bits, like Allison said, they they feel like the, the Hulk that we're used to. So I feel like those are really successful. And Allison, what did you find positive? Well, I'm, like I said, I think some of it is based on when I'm reading it. A bit here about desertion of central London. I rather like it, he said. Have you noticed how clean the air has become? No cars, no people. Only yesterday I saw a fox in Piccadilly and I was, you know, want to make a joke about, did you see one of those Photoshop dolphins in Venice as well? Um, <laughs> but talking about wildlife is returning. And I think the found, things I found striking about it were parallel to the spring we've had and the week we've had that my head is still spinning about everything that's happened here since last Saturday night, because Saturday night we had a combination of peaceful protesters, rowdy, semi-violent protesters, and then mysterious figures who are actually smashing things up. And then Sunday night, we had something that was locally unprecedented, where we had highly organized loot trains of professional criminals mm. in a way that I don't think the rest of the country had, right. um, who were hitting dozens of locations. You'd have dozens of people show up, highly organized. And then there was a remarkable local effort 
by local officials, at least on the, in the news conferences, to distinguish between there are protesters, there are professional criminals who are looting. They are very different groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have a situation where chaos creates opportunity and we're watching all of these horrific videos of police brutality at other protests around the country. And we're not seeing those here in the same way. We're seeing some, but nothing like the scale and the tear gassing and the rubber bullets, et cetera. And it's so many elements <laughs> trying to figure out which end is up and which group is what and what is what. And that I did like about this book. Oh, there are dinosaurs downtown. Oh, they blink in and out of existence. They are here to distract <laughs> from the fake spaceship. No, it's not a real spaceship. Actually, <laughs> we're going to dissolve the world. <laughs> and Mike Yates is helping them because he's a good guy. <laughs> he thinks it's a thing to do. And I will say the sheer number of plot elements and trying to figure out how they all work together in a city center that is emptied out of everyone but these few members of the cast and and these uh, military figures is probably what I will remember more than most of the individual plot elements. But I Um, still say that there's some kind of Terrence Dickery going on here where he or someone (laughs) military style wrote some of this. And I think you you actually convinced me more of my own crackpot theory when you were talking about Whitaker. Whitaker should be incredibly memorable. And I'd already forgotten he existed. Oh, wow. Well, we remember him, but I think we have (laughs) vested interest in remembering him. What strikes me as good about this book, and it may actually strike some people as bad, is that it's possibly the most didactic of Hulk's novels that we've read. Because he does take that educational remit very seriously, that uh, even though he probably didn't intend this to be the case for a young American kid, I never knew what 999 was and had to look it up at the time because at that time, 911 didn't exist in America, at least all across America. I also, and I have to thank him, I don't know if he listens to our podcast, but I have to thank him no less than John Peel. <laughs> I asked him on Facebook what Sarah's reference to the STD still working was about. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, here, Sarah, how is is your STD flaring up helping you with with your research? But no, it stands for standard telephone dialing, which was automatic phone exchange calls that don't require an operator to complete. And I, as a former answering service operator, should have known that, but I didn't. The Pinnacle version also doesn't explain it. There's also something else that he explains. Oh, yeah, the prologue. That prologue is probably the closest to actual history about prehistory that the show ever gets. It's lovely. Yes, it is. Especially even more lovely when you realize that Malcolm Hulk is the one who has created the Silurians and the Sea Devils who completely run counter to all of that. And he doesn't even give them a name check, which is lovely restraint on his part. He also uh, brought my attention to the fact that apparently the term narc predates, with a K, predates narc with a C. I always thought narc was just short for a narcotics officer, but apparently <laughs> it's older. Well, there, but he also explains what a muse is. There are several things in there that are great for American audiences to understand the terminology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at one point even Sarah says, do you have to do this now? This is just typical of you when the doctor's trying to explain what type of dinosaur it is. And it's like, no, no, we, we need this because we don't get nearly enough of it on screen because nothing on screen is something, you know, 
that we really care to learn about. And that first chapter with Shuggy is just phenomenal. That character does not exist in any way on screen. And that's how we're not only introduced to the, the plot, but also to the horror of it. We get a dead body. Uh, notably, and Trey will probably back me up on this, the first episode of this televised story is probably one of the bloodiest deaths we ever see on screen. The car accident. Yeah. 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 I, even in black and white, that's shocking. It's just, it's nasty. And this is the print equivalent of that. And definitely, I have to say, that chapter about one man being isolated from everyone for days really hits too close mm. to home these days. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. This marvelous characterization that he doesn't think anything about the gas being out or the electricity being off or the water being off because he's had that happen to him before. So he figures they just haven't paid the bill. And it's like, oh, my God, you poor guy. All you wanted to do was party in London. You got drunk, so drunk you couldn't get up out of bed and you lost your life because of it because of these f***ing Operation Golden Agers who think they know better than you and who want to get rid of people like you because they feel that you are being too decadent. And most of whom don't know that anything's being done to anyone because they're underground, only a few actually knowing what's being done. Yes, and yet Ruth in particular is still okay with it. I just can't get around that. I also can't get around the fact that the doctor knows exactly what happened to the Marie Celeste and he doesn't tell Sarah either time when he mentions it. Okay, if if I were getting all of my world history from these novels, I would think that the Marie Celeste was up there with the Kennedy assassination in terms of cultural touchstones. This is the third book where it's come up and it comes up twice in this one. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. Well, and also the doctor knows exactly what happened. It was Daleks, right? Right. It was Daleks. <laughs> it's not a mystery to him. Yes, we had a long discussion over the fact that that was played for laughs, and oh my God, it was a mass suicide because of Daleks. Oh, God. Yeah, it's the same sort of conflicted feelings that we had about that scene, that one scene in that one book that seems to pervade this entire book. So, yeah. Anything else? Nope. <laughs> uh, just I, I have a I have a lot of instances of the Nushin karate highlighted, but uh, that just reminded me of the scene with uh, Benton where he tells the doctor to use the Venusian finger pinch or whatever on him. Oh to, yes, isn't that lovely? Yeah. I mean, I have to agree yeah. with Sandifer when she says that it would have made a lot more sense to have Benton be the one to. Uh, turned against them because that would have had more of an emotional impact because Benton is not who you would have expected to have done that. Whereas Yates is kind of maybe even ham-fistedly foreshadowed to some degree, but yeah. So shall we go to Goodreads? Sure. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review and comment in our new Goodreads group, making sure to rate it by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. In fact, that book has been very active, especially with this one. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.59, which 
which is both higher and lower than I thought it would be. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives it four stars and says, One of the first Doctor Who novels I checked out in my local library, Pinnacle Edition, mind you, yeah, me too, when I discovered the series, and boy, did it set me up to be disappointed when I eventually saw the serial. This was in the days when the syndication package only included parts two to six, mind you, so I was initially disappointed that the situation and world-building elements Hulk used to bring part one to the page were missing from my viewing experience. It may be my memory cheating on me here, but I'd say this is in the top two or three best novels from Hulk. Ooh. Rich characters taking advantage of the unlimited effects budget of our imagination, and even the spoiler alert for a close to 40-year-old story, Mike Yates being a traitor, set up so well by Hulk working on the Green Death novelization. Revelation all just work. This is probably the best novelization for Pertwee's final season. Well, that's probably true. Even if I'd argue that it's not necessarily the best televised story from that season. David Davis writes, The opening scenes are the first improvement on the televised version, allowing the story to breathe and setting the atmosphere. I thought so the first time I read this book 40-odd years ago. Reading it again with the pandemic lockdown as a backdrop, the atmosphere resonates even more. There are several small changes, some of them, like Butler's sympathetic backstory, significant. By the way, that's not in the televised version. Butler is just a villain, pure and simple. But the most striking improvement is not having to see those bloody awful toy dinosaurs. And finally, T.E. Hodden says, this is perhaps the greatest example of the novels having infinite budget, being unrestrained by the limits of dodgy models and moonwalking dinosaurs reversing away from soldiers. <laughs> they, they do do that at one point. It's really disturbing. Oh, this, there is a very strong feeling that Hulk has spent a lot of time worrying about how to make very visual scenes work in the book rather than just report what is seen on screen. For example, the character gets a livid scar missing from screen, so when Sarah is left unsuspecting in the care of the villain, we get the, oh no, it's him, moment, with a small detail of the scar rather than clunky exposition. This taut economy and attention to detail is a constant in the novel that works very much in its favor. I'm only sorry that the sound effect from the cover is not used in the body of the text. <laughs> I would tend to agree with that. So... Trey, you're the guest, so we're going to ask you, out of five stars, what would you give this? Well, I always look at novelizations as how well they function as a novelization. So I would give it four stars simply because it is such a tremendous improvement on the televised version. Which it gives us more depth of characters. It gives us even greater levels of nuance. Um, it improves the horror of the dinosaurs rather than being just... The only way you can redeem the dinosaurs on TV is maybe as a form of camp. But here they're, they're genuinely frightening and horrific. But it's not a five-star book. But I think it's, it's doing more than the three-star standard for me, which is just a good, dependable adaptation. It tries to do something more, and it, it gives us a lot to chew on as we've done this, uh, with this discussion. So it's a four-star novelization for me. Okay. Uh, Dalton? Before we started talking about it, my rating was lower. Not significantly lower, but lower. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go about 3.5 for this one. The writing of Hulk is, is good. It's, it's him. It feels like him, but it, it just doesn't seem to uh, shimmer the way some of the other books have all the way through. The story itself is, is, I think, where I had a lot of just kind of meh, whatever feeling. 
Um, I I feel like I don't know it, some, something about it just didn't gel with me. But us kind of talking about it gave me a little more to think about and to kind of uh, wrestle with some of the bigger concepts at play. So yeah, I'd say three point five for me. Okay, and Allison. I wanted to chew on this book and yet kept slipping from my teeth. <laughs> like so many potential good things to explore, whether you like the take or not, where I felt like the take just somehow evaporated. I just cannot reconcile to him having written all of this. I think he wrote like half of it. And I am probably wrong, and yet I'm doubling down on it. <laughs> uh, lots of potential, and yet almost nothing whatsoever is actually landed. And I, I apologize for all the hackney cliches that I'm throwing out left and right here. Uh, like that one, for example. I think I'm going to go 2.5. And when I had started, when I was starting this book, I would have thought, oh, we're on our way to a four. And I'm always more disappointed by a book that promises really interesting things and doesn't deliver interesting things than a book that never promised anything or a book that delivered things I didn't like. Okay. I just think that he brings up good material and goes nowhere with it. And I, I just cannot reconcile to this novel. <laughs> so 2.5. <laughs> All right. And I'm not going to quite go all QAnon the same way that Allison has about the writing of this book. <laughs> I, I can't subscribe to that theory, but I will agree that it's not quite Hulk at his best. And I would say Hulk at his best would be Doctor Who and Silurians, or especially uh, Colony in Space, The Doomsday Weapon, because those books are just amazing. For that matter, even The Space War reads a bit better than some of this. And I think a lot of that is not necessarily that someone else is writing Hulk. I think Hulk is having difficulty writing Hulk, that this is a book that he seems to have put off novelizing towards the very end because he he had a co-authorship on War Games, so of course that was going to be done much later anyway but on this one you can see him struggling on the page trying to figure out okay what am i trying to say with this and how do i keep it faithful to the story that went out which also was not faithful to what i'd originally envisioned for this and it's it has flaws and it really has a flaw in the characterization of whitaker i I am more offended by that characterization now than I will ever was the last two times that I read this book. So I completely agree with Trey on it. But it's still Hulk. It's still pretty good. Um, I can't quite say Hulk is the strongest there is like I normally do, which is a pity because I'm never going to be able to say that on this broadcast again. But I am willing to give it four stars, not the full five, because the, the flaws really bring it down. And it really is kind of a shame. So, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of Death to the Daleks, with exclamation mark included. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all on Word of Spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC 
or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperorgalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. In fact, I don't know if anyone has written me because I've gotten no emails saying this, but maybe they... <laughs> I'm, I have a feeling I'm going to get some after this one. That's what she said. That's my joke. Damn it, Dwight. Our new thing by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. We would very much like to thank Trey Corte for joining us again this time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Great. absolutely. <laughs> Always good to have you up in the house. So thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.